Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name is Chad Kim. With me this week will be Tom Velasco and Trevor Adams. Uh, this week we will be discussing Basil of Caesarea's Contra Eunomius. Um, and for those who don't exactly uh, remember, know or know much about Basil of Caesarea, um, I think we have discussed him uh, way back in the archives when we discussed his On the Holy Spirit. But just a quick recap, uh, Basil of Caesarea was born in 330 in modern-day Turkey. He died in 379 in modern-day Turkey. Uh, his he, so what usually is called Asia Minor in uh, when in discussions of the ancient world, uh, but Basil ha, is, had sort of famous brothers, uh, Gregory, uh, a famous brother Gregory of Nyssa and sister Macrina the Younger. He's also often associated with Gregory Nazianzus, um, and the three of them are collectively referred to as the Cappadocians. Um, so Basil is the oldest of those. Um, it kind of gets a little bit short shrift compared to Gregory Nyssa and Gregory Nazianzus in some cases, um, but nevertheless, this work is a, is comes before um, the Council of um, Constantinople, so it's in between the time of Nicaea and Constantinople, just right in that heart of the kind of famous fourth century debates about the Trinity. So this work. Um, is going to discuss the Trinity to some to some degree. That's going to talk about ancient theories of naming um, and a little bit about uh, Eunomius's perspective and another sort of way of reading the story. So I hope that you find that beneficial. Um, just to kind of give you a heads up of what we have coming uh, forward, um, Tom and Trevor and I have recorded a few other podcasts. Um, this one's going to come out in two parts. Uh, we will have one on Ambrose of Milan and his hymns. Um, I'm going to be recording a conversation with uh, Dr. Kelly Capic, who has a new book on you called You Are Only Human, um, and it's about the limits of humanity. Um, and so we just have a lot of stuff coming down the pike. Um, I hope to be back on track with recording. I also wanted to take the time to thank Eric Schulte. Um, I think I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, but Eric uh, made a very uh, uh, generous donation to us. Um, and so, you know, we don't... Um, we don't always uh, talk about that, but there are costs to keeping all of these files up uploaded and, uh, you know, to the technology to do this. And, um, you know, I will foot the bill occasionally, but I do always appreciate donations. Uh, we have a Patreon account. Um, Eric just donated directly through PayPal. Um, I really appreciate that. So um, I will put a link up to our Patreon um, in this episode, but if you'd like to donate, we always appreciate it. Um, usually I say something like if everyone who listened just gave us a dollar, we would have more than enough. Um, and so based on our listens, we're, we're up to where we're about three or 4,000 downloads an episode. Um, so that should be more than enough to cover our costs. Um, occasionally I do get sponsors, um, but right now we don't have any sponsors, um, and that offsets our costs a little bit. But here is uh, our conversation on Basil of Caesarea's Contra Eunomius. Um, like us on Facebook. Find us on Twitter. On Facebook, we're at A History of Christian Theology. On Twitter, uh, we are at Theology XIAN. Um, and uh, yeah, thanks for listening. We are back, Tom, Trevor, Chad. Uh, we've been recording. We probably have three or four podcasts now um, in the docket. Um, as you may remember from, I just released a podcast, uh, an interview that I did with this guy, and my file was corrupted. 
And basically, my computer has been on the fritz uh, since I did that interview. So it has been slow in coming with new podcasts. And during that time, I had another file corrupted uh, in one of our conversations that is between Tom, Trevor, and Chad. So we're going to kind of re-record uh, our conversation. It'll probably be shorter, um, but we're going to kind of uh, you know rethink through that. And, and that conversation was on Basil of Caesarea's uh, Against Eudnomius. So what will be kind of interesting is we've already recorded and still have good files for our conversations on book two and three. Um, so we'll, I'll insert those in the, um, uh, the feed after this one. Uh, but that's partly why there have not been episodes um, at, at, with any regularity. So my apologies. Um, as I said, it's been a crazy semester and lots of problems. I now have a new computer, so uh, all that is um, good. Um, my son has had three viruses in the last few months. My whole family had COVID. I had a computer crash. Uh, you know, I started a new job. I mean, it was just like there was a, there was a lot going on in the fall semester. Um, we've been my, my son actually knows where the hospital is now. Uh, we've been to the hospital so many times. Um, <laughs> oh, no. it, it's weird. He's two or two and a half. And, and if, if so, if we actually if we leave the house at a weird time, he goes, we go to the hospital. <laughs> uh, <but laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now, I say all that we actually are all quite healthy uh, now uh, at the at this point. But we went through quite of a lot of weird stuff. So. We are going to talk, though, uh, we're going to move from the uh, maybe sort of the active life to the contemplative life. Uh, and this is this is actually one of these things I always I always struggle when I teach with my students um, sort of talking about, like, why is it important to talk about God's substance or God's essence amidst all the struggles and pains of the world? Um, and I think that's a kind of a question that we could ask or discuss maybe today, maybe another time. But it's like, why is this so important? Uh, why do we care how we talk about God? And on the one hand, I think that you can overdo it. Like you can spend all your time only ever thinking about these things. Um, and but but I, I also think that there's a kind of um, it, in, in a sense, it helps us give give perspective on what we're going through in this world. Like if you only ever focus on uh, the ills and the suffering, and if that feels like the most real thing, um, then you kind of get the order backwards. Like part of what the contemplative life, part of what considering the nature of God and these sorts of things are meant to do is sort of reorient us to the world, uh, to remember that which is true and most supremely good so that in that light we can at least see the bad for what it is. So we even have a proper kind of understanding for, for badness um, or proper understanding for what's wrong because we have something that's good. Um, so we're turning our attention to what is good and to what is holy um, and to give praise for what is uh, for what is that so that when we look at what's bad, we can say it's bad because I know it's good. <laughs> um, and so I think I think that's kind of an important thing. Like, like I said, I know we can overdo it. And I know that that's not the only thing in life is the contemplative life. But I do think it's absolutely worth getting right. What is the most real thing and the most real thing? is not evil <laughs> and is not suffering. Um, and, and I think we get, I do think we get that wrong sometimes. I'll let you guys weigh in and then we can, I'll launch into Basil for a minute, but. Yeah, I had never, well, whenever someone says, why do we do things? I think of reasons and then 
philosophies train me to think reasons come in two types. There's like practical or theoretical. And I'm like, why why do we consider God's nature? And I I guess I would have thought that it was purely theoretical, but you kind of just made it seem like there might be practical reasons, which I hadn't really, I guess, considered. Or it's sort of tied up. They're sort of tied up together, though. May not so neatly divide into these two types of reasons because it's also good to just know what's true just for the sake of knowing what's Mm -hmm. true sometimes, um, probably most of the time. But, um, and I guess that's a case where knowing what's true uh, also reveals something about, yeah, the nature of goodness and the nature of badness, as you described. So, yeah, it's kind of, you could do it for one or both reasons, but they're, but they're both sort of the same. They come to the same end, I guess, in a way. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, And I don't know that I would, would frame it as wanting to contemplate God so that I don't focus on the miseries of life. I think, I think I've wanted, not that you necessarily framed it that way, but I just, that's where my mind went. So I'm not necessarily saying that that's what you were saying. Just that's kind of like what popped into my mind. So this kind of serves as like a helpful way to kind of delineate my thoughts on the subject. But I think I always wanted to think about God and have been since, honestly, since I was a kid. And I think uh, I've wanted to do so primarily for the reasons that Trevor just said, I wanted to know what was true. Um, just really, really wanting to have it right. Um, even as a child, like, and I mean four or five, thinking that getting it, like I just realized getting it right was super important. My mom went through a little bout. <laughs> she had, she caught a little case of Mormonism for about uh, <laughs> three weeks when I was a kid. And I say that like seriously, well, I say it jokingly, but I say it, somewhat seriously in that she became a Mormon for like three weeks. Craziest thing. Um, Was never really religious, but always believed in God. Um, The Mormon missionaries came. We all liked them. They talked to us. She decided to do their studies and kind of meet with them. Uh, She got baptized. We went to church once and then we never went again. And I don't even think, I don't even know if my mom remembers that little particular spill in her life. But I remember... My grandparents were Seventh-day Adventists, and my grandfather was probably the biggest um, spiritual influence on my young life. And I remember always sitting there going, well, who's right? Are the Seventh-day Adventists right? Are the Mormons right? Or is my dad, who's a Catholic, right? And that was my big thing. You know, I was like, which one of those is right? And then my mom ended up getting remarried to a guy who... I think would have kind of considered himself roughly evangelical, but that's not a good descriptor. But nonetheless, when it came to spiritual things of what he what he believed, it was kind of basic evangelicalism. So it's like I just was wrestling with what is right. So that's what it started with. But what I can say is I think, um, I mean, I don't know. I, I always, like I was saying to somebody the other day, I'm one of the happiest people I know. I just, I mean, I'm not the happiest. That falls on my friend Tucker. I think he's the happiest person I know. But I'm pretty dang happy. And I think that a lot of that comes from that decision, that thing that I've been doing all my life, just contemplating that. You know, I I think that 
And I think maybe for some of the reasons you're talking about, Chad, like I wouldn't tell somebody think about God so that you don't think about uh, pain and suffering because I think that might make it a little artificial. But I do think that the the fact is, is that when your life is caught up in the things of God, you can't help but kind of really become an optimist. I mean, it's everything. It, it helps to make sense of everything, right? I mean, I think about how C.S. Lewis described um and I can't remember where this is, where this is, maybe one of you will remember, but he talks about how um, for the believer, uh, as he moves forward in this world and then enters into glory, right? The heavenly life will work backwards, so to speak, and it will sanctify everything about his life so that even the worst of things, uh, worst of pains that he suffered will come to... Um, they make sense. I mean, not necessarily that they were enjoyable, but they make sense in the light of this and they're, they 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 fit this narrative of joy. And then he goes on to say, and those who move into the hellish life, right? Then hell is essentially working back in their lives and turning even the best of their experiences into, into that. So I always thought that was kind of an interesting way to look at it. It certainly seems to be how it's played out in my life. Yeah. And, and yeah. And I think, uh, if I said, uh, I'm not telling someone to ignore your misery. <laughs> I didn't, uh, yeah. I, I was just saying like the way I was processing it. Yeah. Right. Um, but it, it can at least at a moment give us like, a at least something of a, okay, I know what good is. Um, and I, and that's why I'm able to say that there's something bad. Um, and, and that's, I, I think, uh, you know, and, and I mean, I'm, I'm fairly thoroughgoing Augustinian and Platonist in this account. I'm going to say that evil is parasitic on the good um, and that it is not the most real thing. Um, but uh, <laughs> I, yeah, I know that you guys could probably take issue with me on that if you like. Um, but um, yeah, I, I, I have a long-term plan to write a book on what is real. Um, I think the concept of real is a funny one. Um, and like, it used to bother me growing up when I went to a Christian school, um, everyone would say, well, well, you're at a Christian school. That's not the real world. Um, <laughs> and I was like, well, well, what is unreal about it? Well, it's, you know, it's a protected world. It's a Christian world. You don't know about suffering. And I was like, oh, okay. So suffering's what's real. Um, and, 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 you know, sort of, yeah, you know, you should know about drugs or you should know about, you know, how people are hard on each other and, you know, everyone here is fake and okay. Yeah, they're fake, but what is it? Why is it that, you know, there's fakeness. I'll grant that. Um, that's fine. Um, but why should I think that those things are the most real things? Um, <laughs> and yeah, because people sitting around doing drugs, that is the height <laughs> of honesty. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> And, and, you know, it's, and I was like, and, and it kind of calls into question the sort of existential or postmodern virtue of authenticity, which I used to take as obviously good. And now I don't. Uh, but that's maybe a separate issue. Uh, I'm not actually sure that being authentic uh, is the same thing as being truthful or honest in a Christian um, and in a classical sense. Um, I actually wonder if authenticity is actually at times a very harmful thing. Um, but uh, you know, those are other questions, but I think you have a lot of questions here about what is real. Um, and so that's what they're debating. Now, part of the weird thing about this. Okay. So we have Basil of Caesarea, mid fourth century 
This is after the Council of Nicaea. Uh, so the first Council of Nicaea is 325. Uh, but this is actually before the Council of Constantinople of 381. So if you've ever said the Nicene Creed in church, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, uh, the maker of heaven and earth, true God from two. Or, and then, you know, God, I believe in God's only son, true God from true God, begotten, not made of one being with the father and all of these sorts of things. Um, of one being with a father. These conversations, those come from Nicaea in 325, but they're ratified and filled out uh, finally in 381. So there's a period of history in Christian theological history uh, where there are a lot of conversations going on in the Mediterranean. Um, and it's also worth pointing out that these are conversations of people who are coming from what is today Turkey, Asia Minor. Uh, these are people coming from Egypt, from North Africa. These are people coming from Syria. And these are people coming from Italy, Gaul, and other such places. Um, so this is a international conversation about what it is that Christians say about who God is. And so we have, we have these two people, Basil of Caesarea from Turkey, uh, from Asia Minor. And then we have Eunomius, who actually I don't remember precisely, but I think he comes from Alexandria. Uh, but I, I have to look that up again. Um, but but Eunomius uh, is kind of in the line of Arius, um, and Arius thought that there was a time when when uh, the second person of the Trinity was not. Uh, there was a time where where what you know the the Son. Uh, was not the son is essentially begotten and God is essentially uh, God. The father is essentially unbegotten. And that's basically what is at issue in book one uh, for Basil and for Eunomius. Um, so history sort of favors Basil in this conversation, right? Um, history like, you know, Christian Orthodox Christianity essentially follows Basil here. Um, that said, what's interesting, I was just talking about Platonism. I mean, one thing that we have to recall for both of them, I mean, you know, the sort of uh, neo neoplatonic mindset is actually at play for both of them. Um, and as you know, someday we'll get up to Chalcedon. Uh, I'm right. I just uh, I should have a paper coming out soon in an Orthodox journal about some uh, Christological debates. Um, and what we have to remember is that when these people are thinking. Um, about these questions, they are all in various ways sort of drawing from the deep well um, of Greek philosophy, uh, a lot influenced by Plato, others by Pythagoras, a little bit of the Stoics, some other things. Um, but but that's their well, that's their stream. So they're actually, you know, I mean, Eunomius kind of thinks he's being consistent. You know, and we should say that Eunomius thinks he's he's being consistent with what he reads in scripture. Eunomius thinks that what he's doing is is a right way to inherit this tradition. He's trying to be honorable towards the one God in his mind. He's trying to get this right. Now Basil chastises him uh pretty vociferously uh on page 83 uh, Eunomius is a lying, stupid, wanton, dissembling, and blasphemous man. Um, I mean, <laughs> it gets pretty intense uh, because – but now, again, why does he get so intense? Well, he doesn't want uh, Christians to, to, to forget that, that the son is not a creature. The son is not created. Um, and that's that's where kind of he and Eunomius get off on the wrong foot and get off into this debate is because Eunomius seems to imply uh, that uh, – or excuse me, Eunomius seems to imply that um, 
that the that the that the son is uh that the essential characteristic of the son is that he is unbegotten uh, that he is begotten and the essential characteristic of the father um is that he is unbegotten right um chad i would interject uh, just uh because uh you mentioned it i looked it up i didn't know but you a moment ago said you thought that Eunomius was from Alexandria. He yeah. is from Turkey, from Asia Minor, and he did okay. serve as a bishop in a city in Turkey called Sisychus, but he did study in Alexandria, and that's where... Okay. So he did get uh, kind of his predilections uh, and his connections to uh, Arian theology, which, just a reminder... Uh, oh, sorry, Arian theology. <laughs> it's probably a little confusing to say Arian. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, just a reminder, guys, that... Uh, uh, you know, that ultimately at this time in the empire, uh, you had a very strong split. You had an enormous number of people uh, and both in power and out of power who would have considered themselves Orthodox Catholics and would have held to the Council of Nicaea. But you also had a, a sizable number of people who were Arians, including during both Eunomius and Basil's life, some of the emperors. Uh, some of the Roman emperors would have considered themselves Arian, believing that Christ was a created being, that Jesus was the first created being. He wasn't just a human. There was something about him that made him greater than all other created beings, but he was created and thus was not the one God. So I uh, just wanted to interject that really quickly. Yeah. Yeah, let's see. I forget now which page is it that he actually tries to give Eunomius's argument. So yeah, they're kind of debating about the the sort of the the rule of faith, uh, the creeds. Um, on page eighty nine, he sort of begins to lay out some of where Eunomius is at. He says, um, "We believe in one God, the Almighty Father, from whom are all things, and in." One only begotten Son of God, the Word, our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and in one Holy Spirit, the paraclete. And then he adds, this then is the faith that is simpler and common to all who are concerned with either appearing to be or actually being Christians, uh, so that one can say the more important pious summary. So I think at that point, uh, Eunomius is not all that, um, all that far uh, from uh, the uh, what becomes the sort of orthodox position. But eventually, he starts to add what makes him different uh, from the uh, Nicaeans, um, and and really, it is it's it's kind of that he thinks that this only begottenness is uh, constitutive of the sonness. Um, so we will. Uh, I'm just trying to figure out where he actually says that. So um, I don't remember exactly where he states the argument, but I think I can summarize it in a way that makes some sense. That maybe while you guys are looking that up, I can. Um, maybe set this ball rolling a little bit. <clears throat> he defined, he basically says something like this. Look, what is essence? Essence, the essence of something are the attributes or the qualities of that be the, that being, right? And <clears throat> um, the Nicene formulation says that the father and the son are the same essence. But Eunomius points out that the father is unbegotten. The son is begotten. And he essentially makes the argument that they can't possibly be the same thing if 
the essence of the father is different from the essence of the son. And if the father is unbegotten and the son is begotten, then they must have different essences. So they have to be different beings. More yeah. or less. That's I found, the, yeah, that's I, I, I found the, the passage and it's exactly what you just said, except it, and then he adds that it, that he's basically hung up on this pre-existence claim. It's like, oh, it's not just merely the fact they have these different properties. It's just that then one would also have to, God would have to pre-exist himself, he thinks, to be both unbegotten and begotten. And that's the part that's supposed to be uh, sort of insane. So the quote, it's actually on page 91 of the uh, PDF. Mm -hmm. He says, let's consider the argument that Eunomius sets out concerning God. And this is Eunomius right here, supposedly at least. Therefore, it is in accordance with both the natural notion and the teachings of the fathers that we have confessed that God is one and that he did not come into existence either from himself or from another. Each of these alternatives you see is equally impossible since according to the truth, the maker must pre-exist what comes into existence and what is made must be secondary to the maker. A thing cannot be prior or posterior to itself and no other thing can be prior to God if there were such a thing. It, rather than the second, would surely have the dignity of divinity. And then he basically says, so then it's been demonstrated that God neither pre-exists himself nor that anything else pre-exists him, but that he is before all things. Then it follows from this that he is unbegotten, or rather his unbegottenness is unbegotten substance. And that's where he, that's the first point. By the way, I jumped to page 94 to get that quote. That's sort of where he sneaks in the fact that it's like, um, it's beyond just apply merely applying a property either. It's like God is identical to unbegottenness. Um, so the and this is a way in which, of course, would have been normal to talk about this back then. Um, you could talk about sort of justice or goodness, like the properties themselves being identical to those things. And uh, just like you'd maybe say God is love, something like that. He is now wanting to say God is unbegottenness and therefore, yeah. And then And then he's going to go on to make the exact argument that Tom outlined. But we know the son is begotten. That's like literally what, you know, we say in the creed. Um, well, and I Wait, think one. You said the son is unbegotten. You mean begotten, right? Son, or I, I. Oh, if I said un, I meant begotten. Yeah. Uh, you might have said it. Maybe I, my brain twisted. One of us <laughs> around. It could have been my brain. Our ear will know. Son is <laughs> son is begotten is what I meant to say for the record. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, and one of the sort of um, again, like the difficulty in these these sort of debates is. Uh, understanding the the sort of the logic the reasoning that they're going through and for for god to be utterly simple um god cannot be different from his properties in some sense um so like if you're able to name or god cannot be like two separate things like we can't think of god in parts um and so like aetius or uh, eunomius thinks uh that this is part of that sort of simplicity like if i'm able to name this thing um, then as like, I can also say something about what is constitutive of godness. Um, and, and so there's like, you know, substances and accidents and, um, these sort of things that, um, you know, that we talk about, like, 
uh, for uh, any metaphysical entity or any entity um, can have a kind of an essence and a property and these sorts of things. Um, so, or uh, sorry, excuse me, uh, a substance and an accident. Um, and so, like, Eunomius thinks he's just sort of reasoning, uh, but reasoning from scripture, reasoning from the tradition. He's like, yeah, that's right. Un uh, Christ being uh, begotten, or the second person of the Trinity, uh, the Son being begotten, is uh that's the that's the one defining characteristic um and that should lead us into something about who he is so i mean i think it's you know i don't want to like i'm not trying to give him his due uh too much in the sense uh, like i'm not trying to like say that i agree with him but i think it's important to understand the logic that they're working with and we could you know in order to see how we come to basil's position but i i'm willing to give him his due in fact um, you know, as, as you've already pointed out, Chad, we read this a long time ago, and and Ch uh, you, Basil's arguments, I don't remember. I remember Eunomius's, which means I feel like they've had a stronger impact on me in general. Not that I agree with him. I, I still assert the Nicene Creed. But I will say that there is there is in me, and this has probably come up a couple of times, because when, like, like the passage you read a little bit ago, Chad, um, kind of to kick us off, where Basil talks about Eunomius being a heretic, which he's a heretic, granted. But then, like, just this really fiery language. It's, you know, one of the things I've brought up before, just how bothered I am by the way the fathers are just constantly employing ad hominem attacks against the guys they're reasoning with. And um, I always think it's interesting because it's with these doctrines, which, although vitally important, are also really hard to understand such that I feel like we should have a little bit of sympathy for people who are trying to make sense of stuff that isn't all that easy to comprehend. And so like, I think, you know, and then I'll throw in one more thing that I've been thinking a lot about lately. And I think this relates and that is like, I mean, we're all complex beings, not simple beings. <laughs> Except for maybe God. <laughs> um, although I will interject really quickly. For me, I've always been suspicious of, and I've said this before on the podcast, I've always been suspicious of this idea that that God has to be a simple being. I still am not convinced as to why that is. And, and it seems to me that that's just rooted in Platonic metaphysics. And I, although I, there's a lot about Plato's metaphysics that I'm, I'm intrigued by and that I like and affirm at many times. I'm not married to it by any stretch of the imagination. And in fact, I'm the opposite of married to it because I definitely reject good chunks of it out of hand. But um, in any case, that neither here nor there, um, we're complex beings and we all kind of have different like qualities and, and activities that we take part in and things that matter to us. And probably the two most important things to me are my like about me that is are my christianity is number 1 and then my love of philosophy is number 2 and these two which i think can accentuate and help each other a lot also in certain ways stand in total contradistinction right because on the one hand christianity is dogma i mean at least i mean i don't want to make that the the definition simplicitaire it's it's but it's it's like being a Christian means you subject yourself to certain dogma. Being a philosopher means that you challenge everything you can think of, which is the opposite of submitting to a dogma. 
So I live in this really weird world where on the one hand, I'm trying to uphold a dogma. I believe in a dogma. I teach a dogma. I teach it to kids at the school I teach at. I teach it to people at our church and I teach it as dogma. But I also feel like I have to challenge everything. And I respect it when somebody in earnest challenges everything. As long as they're in earnest, that's my big thing. And many of the heretics we've read, I've had no reason to think they weren't in earnest. Like for me, the heretics I really don't like are, I know that sounds terrible, but the ones who are like trying to create a position to manipulate people and take money from them and that kind of stuff is, that's where I really get upset. But when I'm reading somebody who's just trying to wrestle with something that's hard to understand, I have enormous sympathy for them. Now, I don't know anything about Eunomius beyond what Basil says. So Basil himself is helping me like Eunomius a little more probably than I should because he's attacking <laughs> so clearly. But I'm sure if I read Eunomius, he would be ticking me off as well by saying all the same kinds of things that, you know, Basil's saying, you know. But nonetheless, I do have that sympathy. Uh, this is a minor rabbit trail. I wonder if your definition of what it means to be a philosopher, to what extent is it uh, – I mean, I know that it's a product of at least the last 100 years or 200 years. But right – so when uh, when Basil of Caesarea, when Gregory Nyssa, uh, when these guys talk about philosophy, what they mean is uh, sort of the pursuit of wisdom and a life well-lived. Um, it's not an absolute questioning of every dogma that would not actually be so so that what the way that you said that made it made me think of like what's sometimes called academic skepticism it's sort of a, a, a philosophical school that descends from Plato Carneades I believe is one of the uh, the kind of key figures at least in Cicero uh, when Cicero talks about this because Cicero seems to be a kind of skeptic of of the sort that Tom was talking about question every dogma uh, but by the time uh, you know Basil and uh, Eunomius are having these debates uh, they call Macrina Basil calls his sister Macrina one of those philosophical peoples that he knows in the way that she lives her life um, and what he means is that she's very virtuous. <laughs> um, and I, you know, and there's a sense in which like, we don't mean that at all. <laughs> uh, when we call, if we call someone a philosopher, they could be a terrible person. Um, mm. but they just have this, uh, inclination, uh, to question every prior and assumption and, and sort of assume that they can proceed, uh, in their life with 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 no uh, presuppositions or something, or all question presuppositions. Um, and, yeah. Well, let me I, real quick, I know you have some things covered, but let me just answer, because I feel like I need to answer, because I want to clarify what I said. Because I wasn't saying that uh, that was a definition of philosophy. What I was saying well, no, was... Well, there's no the, definition of philosophy. I know, I get it. Yeah, yeah, and so... <laughs> What I mean, my definition of philosophy is my understanding of Socrates's, which is it, yeah. it's the love of wisdom, which is the pursuit of fundamental truth. And when you which I which when you see what Socrates does, that's like one of one of the things he does is to sit there and to say, OK, you put forward an answer as to what you think fundamental truth is. Let's see if it stands up to scrutiny, because I really want to believe what's right. Like and so I'm not a skeptic and I don't think people should be skeptics. Nor do I think we should challenge dogma just for the sake of challenging dogma. But I do think a part of coming at wisdom is 
basically holding it up to scrutiny is essentially. And I, I think one of the things I think about the early church fathers are in terms of their love of philosophy and the way that they apply the term, it's rooted in essentially kind of a love for Plato and Aristotle. Well, mostly mm-hmm. Plato at this point, I think, but where they almost saint him, so to speak. And oh, so yeah. what he did was good. So then they ascribe philosophy to things that he probably wouldn't have. Anyway, sorry, Trevor, go ahead. Oh, well, I was I was going to basically... I was going to have you tag me in. I was going to in the ring for you. Because um, that's what I was going to say is that it is part, there's a way in which it's put simply by saying question everything, but there is a way in which it is like the fundamental thing about philosophy and bringing up Socrates is exactly what I was going to do. We, I think that philosophy as a way of life is um, has been like sort of left behind for a long time. It is coming back, by the way. And that's sort of what you were mentioning, uh, Chad, is that it used to mean something about someone if they're a philosopher, too. Um, it, it, that is coming back. There are actually conferences called, like, Philosophy is a Way of Life, and people are trying to bring it back. The latest responses to the last Phil Papers survey, which is, like, the biggest survey about the views of modern, you know, contemporary philosophers out there, um, when they ask what is the goal of philosophy, uh, you know, overwhelmingly people used to answer just truth, but now people actually answer understanding more than truth, which is really interesting, um, which kind of shows that it's more because understanding is kind of an, an active thing rather than like this just thing out there, truth, whatever, um, you know, just like we're just like hoarders of true statements, like we're not just doing that. Instead, it's like we're actually trying to do something and understand the world. Uh, and thus the philosopher should understand things. I mean, that's like a, that would be like an attribute of the philosopher in, in theory. So it is coming back, uh, but it is fundamental, I think, because as a, technically, I guess I'm an epistemologist, at least I've studied that more than anything else. Um, I, I had this like long debate in my own life as to whether metaphysics or epistemology is first philosophy, but whether or not, epistemology is first philosophy as in like the fundamental philosophy it is definitely the fundamental like value of philosophy because we always want to say why do you believe that like what reason do you have for that and that we are definitely always hunting for reasons so to understand and that is like what socrates set out right like right in the very uh, beginning of Euthyphro, pretty much after Euthyphro explains why he's about to put his father uh, on trial, he's like, "Tell me what piety is, seeing as you understand." I mean, that's that is, and that that is the the fundamental, I think, value of philosophy. Anyway, that but we don't need to go off on that. But I think it 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 does enter uh, even here, right? Because that, that's sort of absolutely enters here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, So as much as maybe this isn't um, question everything, because you'll, you'll notice all the philosophers had essentially their cultural metaphysical um, axioms, you might say Mm -hmm. things they left unquestioned. Uh, Yeah. But, but, but then from there, they always want to, sort of uh work forward asking for reasons trying to justify um and that was why i said it was like epistemology is the value because everyone is trying to justify their beliefs like you believe that you need to actually justify it 
your example of the Euthyphro, Trevor, I like it because it ties together all of what has been said, you know, tying together even or what you said earlier, Chad, too, which is, of course, the goal, like, like, um, Trevor already said what Euthyphro was doing. He was going to court to put his father on trial to put him to death. And Socrates was like, whoa, you're going to put your father on trial? And Euthyphro's <laughs> like, yes, because I am committed to justice over anything else. And Socrates says, well, sure, or piety, like being, I guess he did use the word piety. I don't know why I'm, that's, uh, I'm forgetting why that would be the court, uh, why that would apply in court. But anyway, Socrates said, well, you better have confidence that you know what you're talking about if you're going to apply it to putting your dad to death. And so that's where it all comes together is like, it's the idea that we have real understanding. I like that word of these things. And that's why we can live the good life, right? That's why we can live the virtuous life because we've walked through it all. We've thought about it all and we've come to the right conclusions. Now, one thing I will say though, and this is, this is just an immediate, my, like my personal kind of jumping at that term understanding. I still think of the goal of philosophy should be truth, capital T truth. But understanding I think of as like this ancillary step that is necessary to get to that. Like you, you can't possibly have attained a truth if you don't even understand the different options out there, like what people are saying and why they're saying it, you know? And, and so um, I say that because only in the case, if there's a philosopher out there who's like, Oh, I'm going to go with understanding, not truth, because they might think there is no such thing as a capital T truth. And they're just going for understanding almost like they think it's virtuous to understand it in and of itself. I still think if there is no capital T truth, which I can't see how there couldn't be, I actually can't envision how that would even be possible. Um, I can't see why understanding would matter if there wasn't. So, yeah, I would think, of course, that that would be like the next question you'd put to someone in a way. Because, yeah, because if as long as, um, yeah, if you think like there is some sort of objective reality that you can come to find uh, truths out about, understanding's uh, a great goal because it's something you can do personally. Um, and then hopefully because the, the world is the way it is, you are learning the truth. Um, so yeah, I, I'm not really sure exactly all the motivations. I know that that's at least that was one of the motivations that was explained to me. Cause I actually just put in truth from being honest when I took the survey myself and then I saw the answers come back and I'm like, why would people say that? I asked one of my professors and he was just like, because I think it's something people can actually do. So you can't truth. You you know, you can, yeah. and you might try to figure, like it takes a long time to even explain to people the best ways to figure out what's true, right? Basically that's reasoning and all the, the things we've developed and, and that's so hard. So sometimes it's easier to just get people to understand things. Um, and and it's true that, yeah, it's, it's like the more basic thing, but then once you get it, um, you know, once you even just understand a concept, you might be able to further figure out the way the world is. But yeah. anyway, that was, that was our well, tangent on <laughs> philosophy's purpose. <laughs> yeah. Well, but so uh, just again, to, to sort of orient our listeners, I probably have said this before, but 
uh, all these people thought of themselves as philosophers. There wasn't there wasn't an occupation or there wasn't a self understanding of theologian uh, as opposed to philosopher, right? So like right. all the people that we've studied from uh, Justin Martyr to Tertullian, Justin Martyr wore the philosopher's robes famously. Um, you know, they're like from from the uh, earliest uh, understanding of Christian sort of thought, uh, they were doing some kind of reasoning. They were doing some kind of ration, like they had a kind of uh, uh, logic to what they were doing and they thought of it they called it philosophy now you know the what the technical term theologia theology is is the study of the things that sort of uh, 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 move towards the divine mystery um, and so what what we are approaching with basil and with eunomius is how do we uh, move to that divine mystery. How do we get to the the thing that is the reason that there is the thing, right? So uh, I'm looking up at my uh, my icon of Christ um, taken from Pantocrator uh, at Sinai, and over Christ's head is whole own, right? So the, the 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 that which is the ground of being, the 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 being, um, and and so that right. So that comes from. Uh, Exodus three um, that comes from a few different places, but that's where for Christian uh, understanding, uh, right, right, is is we're trying to understand being, right? We're trying to understand this thing uh, that that uh, undergirds all that is, and so Eunomius thinks uh, that he can get at this through divine names, Christ, unbegotten. Um, so he thinks this name, this name unbegotten, tells him something. Or excuse me, uh, well, God, God the Father being unbegotten, God the Son being begotten. He thinks that this name uh, tells him something constitutive of God. And so he's trying to proceed into that mystery. Um, now, Basil says, uh, he says this is not the substance. Um, and so he says 107 on page 107, he says, as for me, I would say that the substance of God is unbegotten, but I would not say that unbegottenness is the substance. So it, it does to it is something true that can be said, but it is not the same as the substance itself. Um, and so um, he's, he's trying to get away from this um, a little bit above that on 105. There is uh, not one name which encompasses uh, uh Okay, there, there is not one name which encompasses the entire nature of God and suffices to express it adequately. Rather, there are many diverse names, and each one contributes in accordance with its own meaning to a notion that is altogether dim. Uh, right, so the, the um, Cappadocians, the Christians, believed that, you know, uh, as 1 Corinthians says, we see through a glass uh, dimly, um, right? So there's, there's sort of this mysterious nature of God and God's self. Um, there are many diverse names. Each one contributes to, uh, in accordance with its own meaning, to a notion that is altogether dim and uh, trifling as regards the whole, but that is at least sufficient for us. Um, and so that's kind of what he, that, that's where he takes issue with Eunomius. Don't, don't think that this one name gives you the whole. Um, and there you go. Uh, we can yep. move on from that, but. Uh, Go ahead, Trevor. Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, I uh, just to sort of like, I guess, really recap the things I thought when I first read this. Um, 
I remember being really confused and I, you know, we've talked about this already um, together uh, before we recorded, but I, I remember being really confused about the usage of name. And then when I realized that he was naming the property itself, he was saying like the property itself has this name, like it is unbegottenness. Um, I remember being like, oh, okay. So that's, that's why he can make identity claims between things like unbegottenness and the father, for example, um, is that, and, and the reason why it was confusing is in, you know, contemporary philosophy names, uh, just sort of refer, they don't really have like a, like a meaning like, uh, properties do, um, at least that's, that's a common doctrine now held post Kripke, uh, Saul Kripke, that is, uh, though some people still take issue with it. So it's not, it's not like a hundred percent everyone agrees, but it is like most people think of names in this, uh, this way, they call them rigid designators. They just sort of designate the same thing in all possible worlds. And it's, it's, so I remember having a hard time understanding that, but then once I understood where Eunomius is coming from, like unbegottenness is a name, it really a name. What is a name? It names the property unbegottenness, which really exists. Like it, like almost like Plato's forms, right? It, it exists as this primary thing. Um, and once you see that, you see that the argument makes a little bit more sense because then if the father is really identical to the unbegottenness, um, we, we get this, we get this problem because it, it essentially creates this division in God because now you've got the son being identical to begottenness itself somehow, which is, which is another really weird part of the argument. Now, how I don't remember, uh, and I don't, I actually, I'm not really sure if we're told exactly how Eunomius gets to those conclusions, the, the identity claim, uh, because every passage we get is really short from Basil. And then when we get Eunomius's like little description or, or sorry, little quote, uh, Basil just starts calling him an idiot immediately after. Like, I faint, you know, oh, I faint to even repeat such stupid claims that I just read to you. But I had to, you so you can see how garrulous he is. Like, I don't know. It was, all, it's really, it's just a lot of stuff like that. Um, but yeah, but I remember that later, this is later in book one, Basil does come to this idea that our understanding of God is sort of incomplete. I think this is what you're hinting at there at the end, Chad. Um, uh-huh. And um, I'm now trying to find the quote that I wanted to look up. That Okay. Anyway, I don't have it quite uh, in front of me because I failed. But the, basically, yeah, that our understanding of God, like, on this side of reality will um, always be limited. And that really like God is the only being that understands God in a way like fully. And I was just going to say that this is definitely a precursor to like a lot of medieval theology later on where they would probably call maybe some of these actual properties, but what they'll end up saying is we don't um, really ascribe properties to God literally. We just do it, as they say, uh, what's the phrase that the medievals use? I already forget. But you don't you don't actually apply it, but you apply it. 
it's it's sort of metaphorically but that's not the right word um they've got some medieval term they always do (laughs) um and it's sort of like you're you're sort of applying metaphorically it's like it's the best we can do oh Mm. i think it's and analogically sorry there you go it's like an analogy yeah yeah analogical predication is what they end up saying because it's sort of like yeah it's like how things are have properties here on earth god is this but it's not really like that because you know god's um nature is beyond our understanding um which you can kind of see that precursor of that sort of idea here in basil uh though basil doesn't say exactly that of course I will uh, chime in and I guess kind of, I guess I'd be shifting things a little bit. I just, some of uh, Basil's responses to Eunomius, um, I find interesting. Uh, And, you know, he writes in a, he uses kind of a, a, I can't think of the word. He approaches it with language different from what I'm used to. So it could be that I'm misinterpreting Basil, but at least the way I seem to understand it. He basically says, look, um, when we talk about, like the begottenness or unbegottenness. He says the simple fact that Eunomius can even ask questions about the being God and ask whether or not he's begotten or unbegotten and and describe him in terms of precedence, like first and second. He says that shows that the notion of begottenness or of unbegottenness are actually external to the Mm -hmm. essence of God himself. So it's in essence, so basically that question is a relational attribute, mm-hmm. not That's a right. substantive attribute. It's like, That's right. it's relational. Um, and so the real attributes of God, of course, would be, and he, he lists, he goes through scripture and talks about all of these uh, things, you know, righteousness and eternality and things of that nature. But then he goes on to say, but all of those things are ascribed to both the father and the son. The implication being that the father and the son are both God. And then, and I I don't remember if he says this, but this was my impression. As I thought about it, I thought, well, unbegottenness and begottenness, neither of those are qualities of God at all, per se. They're rather qualities of the father and the son. And I would say that the father being unbegotten would be... um, something that would be, and, and this will be tricky, but it's the way I'm using the word essence. It would be essential to the notion of the father because he is a father um, in this case because he, well, actually, you know what? I don't know that unbegottenness would need to be. I would say begetting is essential. Yeah, The father begets. That's what makes him the father. And the son is begotten. That's what makes him the son. Um, and so, so what these terms essentially do is they apply to the term father and son, but not to God. And so then what we're left with is this thing, which is just, again, part of the mystery of the Trinity, that the father is God, the son is God, but God is not two different beings. But you have to have, a like essence just means attributes and qualities. To be able to speak intelligently of the notion of the father and of the notion of the son, you have to be thinking and talking about different qualities. That's what makes that distinction different. But it's with regards to the fatherhood and sonhood, not with regards to the godhood. So when you think of God, begottenness, unbegottenness, those aren't factors that figure in. What do figure in are eternality, omnipresence, omniscience, 
the creative impulse and ability, power, omnipotence, all of those things, that's those are the essence of God. Those are the essential characteristics of God. But when we say that God is also father that God is father and son, they both are God, but there's not two distinct beings. They share in that essence. What we're saying is that essence of all those qualities that I just mentioned, those apply to father, those apply to son, indivisibly, indistinctly, uh, indistinct, uh, distinctively. But we do make a distinction between the father and son, and the distinction between those two persons of the Godhead is that one begat and the other was begotten. Yeah, and uh, the distinction the is a distinction of, re- of relation, and that's really exactly. Bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I think, to Eunomius's credit, he just was thinking that you know he goes to his little puzzle of preexistence, and that's how he's thinking of begottenness, and that's really not like that dumb of an idea. You know, later on, right? We developed these. I don't know who the first theologian, Chad. You know the history of theology is you. Uh, I don't know who's the first person to come up with this analogy of the sun and the rays coming from the sun. But yeah, that ends up being like the analogy everyone, uh, you know, well, brings Plato, up. right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, for is that between what the one and something else? Yeah. I, th- I mean, I think this is, this is sort of foundational for Platonism. Yeah. So, but they borrowed, but they borrowed that analogy for the son and the father. Okay. Yeah. And I don't know who the first person was to do that then, but that was my point is, you know, this idea that it's this eternal um, relation, you know, this is a relationship that's held eternally, timelessly, that this proceeding from, um, you know. So, yeah, that's the part that it's not dumb that Eunomius didn't think of that. Basically, I guess so. So you know, you know, is just working through the dogma that already is like you know put out there, and is just thinking about the words begotten and unbegotten. And yeah, this has been a history of Christian theology. We appreciate you listening. Um, up next will be the second half of this conversation where we talk about books two and three of Contra Eunomius. Um, so find us on Facebook, like us, um, and on Twitter as well. Uh, thanks for listening.